book of Romans. We're back in Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to be looking at a couple verses there, 33 and 34. But I'm going to begin reading at uh, 31. I'm going to read down through 37. That's just the whole context of the, of the passage that we're in the middle of. But uh, Paul opens up with, with these words. He says, and by the way, there's a series of questions here. Here's uh, six questions where he asks, What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, uh, we're coming to a passage that just reminds us of the great work that you've done on our behalf through your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today with unsettled heart, maybe not quite sure whether they're truly saved or even this week perhaps they've, they're tempted to even think that they have committed a sin that might unravel the salvation that you brought to them. Oh Lord, where there's a lack of assurance, a lack of hope, I pray you would restore that through your word today. And Lord, this, this passage is rich, speaking to anyone here without Christ. You might open their hearts and eyes and minds and, and cause them to see their need for a Savior, the one who has taken and paid the price that we might be redeemed and freed and have the gift of everlasting life. Open hearts to receive Christ through faith. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I count it with great joy that I can open up our Bibles together to Romans chapter 8 once again. Uh, it's a great chapter of God, isn't it? I mean, this is one of the greats of all the Bible. God has graced us with a salvation that's unshakable. If you're here sitting here today worshiping as a Christian, you're worshiping with a faith in Christ that will never be taken away from you. You are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ today with a hope that, that will never fade. You are secure in Christ. You're in Christ. He's done it all. He's paid it all. And you're in Christ. And you will never, ever, ever lose that salvation. I'm done. Let's sing the last song. That's the message. But we're going to look at a couple more verses. But that's the message. In a nutshell. God has given us a faith that will carry you safely all the way through the end. We're blessed in the Christian life that we should be filled with, with such joyful assurance 
joyful hope, joyful confidence that we're truly children of God. God didn't save you to fret and to worry and to doubt and to to wonder whether or not you are truly saved or whether you've committed the impardonable sin this week and somehow have undone what, what He has already done in your heart. You'll never fall from grace. You're secure in the hand of Almighty God. In fact, it's so clear in Scripture, the assurance and the security of the believer, that I find it almost impossible to believe that there are many today in Christian circles who doubt whether or not they're secure in their faith. They, 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 they have a fret and they worry about thinking they can lose their salvation. And all I can say is they must not be reading their Bibles because it is so clear, so clear, so black, so white in the, in the Word of God that it surprises me that anyone could walk away from Scripture and think that they could somehow forfeit or lose their salvation and walk in fear. I mean, if there were no other verses but the one we've already looked at in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also what? Called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He will, He has, and He is glorifying them. We will be glorified. So if you entered with God on the very front end of this chain of salvation, you know you're going to make it all the way to the end. If you, if you came in at the foreknowledge of God, that is, He first pre-loved you before the, the foundation of the world, you, 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 will, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And having been predestined, you will be called. And if you're here today worshiping as a believer, you have been called. And if you have been called, you, you have also been what? Justified. And because you're justified, we also see that you will be, you will be, not maybe, will be glorified. Do you see that chain in those verses? Do you see how they're interconnected? How that if, that if you're on the first link, you're going to make it all the way to the last link. You pull at it. It cannot be broken. And so each step of our salvation is linked together from the beginning to the end, from eternity past to eternity future. And you might object, and you're sitting there and might be thinking, but wait a minute, Don, I know chains. You know, I know chains connect from one link to another. But I also know this, chains break. I mean, have you ever had a broken chain? You know, you think about all the all the times that, that, that chains have been broken in your life. I mean, you, you could have a Toyota, for example, an older Toyota with, a, with a, a timing chain on it. And it used to be that it was good for 120,000 miles, and get ready, it's going to break. And when that timing chain breaks, your car does what? It comes to a complete stop. Uh, have you ever had a garage door chain break? And so you are flipping the, you know... Nothing happens. Why? It's because it's broken. It's stopped. Chainsaws break. That's why they have extra chains with them. Bicycle chains, kids, right? From time to time, a bicycle chain will actually break. and You have to put it back together again. I mean, wherever there's chains, there's a chain that could and might break. And so Paul is anticipating your objection, 
He doesn't want there to be any, even an inkling of doubt as far as the security that you have in Christ. So he closes this chapter by confronting every possible means that you could think of that would somehow break your chain of, of, of Romans chapter 8, verse 19 and following. There's nothing that can break the chain. It's linked together, and we're going to see nothing. In fact, there's only two possibilities, people or things. There's no person or event that can ever cause that chain of salvation in your life to break. And he's going to drive that point home all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, This leads us into the grand finale of this chapter 8 we talked about last time. If you look at, say, uh, verses 31 down to the end, and you look at everything above 31 as as kind of the the fireworks display of the glory of, of salvation... I was thinking 31 down to 37, you might look at that as, this is the grand finale. This is at the very end of the fireworks display where things just start popping and going off and blasting. And, and then as you get closer and closer to the finally, to, to the conclusion, then all of a sudden there's this loud, it gets louder and louder to a great crescendo. That's how this chapter ends. And we're right in the middle of, of, of that great firework display, looking forward, hopefully next week, to the great crescendo. We see that Paul in this passage asks six rhetorical questions that I pray would flood each one of your hearts with great confidence and assurance and joy and hope. Now, you all know what a rhetorical question is, right? A rhetorical question, kids, listen carefully. A rhetorical question is one where you ask it, but the answer to that question is implied in the what? In the question. Uh, so, you know, it opened up in verse 31. What should we say to these things? And you might be asking, well, what things, Paul? What conclusion can we draw from all the things that we've just said? That's a rhetorical question. And you ask, what things, Paul? And, of course, we went back to Romans 8, 18 through 30, all those things that talk about salvation. But I think we have license, as we saw last time, to even go back before that to Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through, starting at 117, where Paul writes, For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in Romans chapter 1, you have Paul beginning at the very, very get-go of the book to start laying out for us the great doctrine of justification by faith, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of just, uh, sanctification. And he says, what should we say to all these great truths about our salvation? What can we say about the sacrificial work of Christ? What can we say about this being justified by faith and, and standing in grace and the righteousness that's imputed to us through Christ and our union with Christ and, and, and the, the breaking power of reigning sin in our life and holiness and sanctification and the role of the Spirit in, in bringing us life. What, what can we say of all of that truth? Verse 31, a question we saw last time. What then shall we say to all of that, to those things? If God is for us, if God has done all that, who in the world can be against us? Who in the world can strip you of your salvation? Verse 32, we saw last time. He who did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him 
also freely give us all things. We saw that was the argument from the greater to the, to the lesser. If, if, if God has given you everything, His Son, I mean, isn't He going to keep you? If He gave His Son to save you, won't He at least give you, won't He keep you? Isn't that a lesser thing for Him to do? So today we're coming to the next two questions, three and four, and, and remember they're rhetorical questions. So let me read the two questions to you. Put your thinking caps on, and you tell me what the answer is without even hearing the answer preached to you. In other words, the answer should be implied in the question itself. First question, verse 32. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What's the answer? No one. Isn't that applied, implied there? Uh, verse 34. Who is to condemn you? It's implied there. No one. Now he's going to work that out, and we're going to see that worked out in these two verses. But let's look at the first question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We say no one. It is God who justifies. Now let's look at the word who there and, and see who the who is. Uh, who is or who, who is the who? Uh, who's the one that can't break the chain? Who's the one that can't cause you to lose your salvation? We, we, we know that nobody can. But who is Paul thinking about here? Who's the accuser? Who's the one that brings charges against the elect? You know, he doesn't give us an answer to that, does he? He doesn't say in this passage who the who is. Uh, but we, we can get kind of, an, I think, a few clues. For example, one clue is this is in the future tense. And who shall bring a charge against you? Not who is bringing a charge against you in the present, but who, who in the future might bring a charge against you? Maybe he's looking forward to that heavenly courtroom, that day when we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now it's judgment day, and now there's going to be an accounting for everything that's done in this life. And, and on that day, who is it that can stand before God and, and bring any kind of charge against you at that moment that's going to cause you to lose your salvation and not enter into the glorious kingdom of God face-to-face uh, -face with our Savior? Who can bring a charge on that final day? Now, if that's the case, I would see this maybe referring to, to Satan himself. In other words, this could be, the who could be Satan. Can Satan bring a charge against God's elect? But it also could be, you know, he doesn't tell us. It could be just your enemies bringing charges against you. It could be relatives. It could be your spouse. Imagine your spouse standing before God and saying, see what he's done? He's going to heaven. She's going to heaven. Could be a relative, a family member. Could be yourself. Could be your conscience. Are you saying, I'm going to go to heaven based on all that I've done in my life? Who, who would accept me? Or it could be Satan. Well, it might be your enemies. It might be your wife. It might be your husband. It, it could be your conscience. It could be all those. Your, your, your conscience might tell you, after all, God, I'm a sinner. I have no hope. I'll tell you what, there's, there's no lack of lineup in your life of people who are willing to stand up and get in line and charge you. I mean, if you, if you don't think there's anyone out there to do that, you're, you're mistaken. It starts with yourself. You start condemning yourself and condemning your relationship to God. 
But then there are relatives, and there's friends. There might even be church members. And you go on down the line, and, and ultimately there's Satan that's there. And they're all just pointing their fingers, charging you, and charging you as a guilty one before the court of heaven. And they say, you've sinned. And you know what? Is that true? I mean, if someone charged you today, you're a sin, you've sinned. Would you, would you say, yeah, that's true of me? I would say it's true of me. Yes, I, I have. Now, that's only a half-truth, though. We have sinned, but it doesn't stop there as redeemed people of God. Where does it go from there? Well, it goes to the next place. Well, God has, God has forgiven me. I'm forgiven. I'm a new creature in Christ. And that's the part where the condemners don't bring the second half. They just bring the first half and lay a guilt trip on you and say you're going to lose your salvation. I think maybe a better way of looking at this question is, who can make a charge that will stick against you? See, anyone can make charges. We can't say no one. But who can make a charge against you about your salvation that will stick on Judgment Day against God's elect? Well, I I believe Satan is going to be active in this process. He already is. I know in Revelation chapter 12, 10, we see, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, quote, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser, here it is, the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. Ooh, finally. So he's the accuser. He's the one that's always going to accuse you of, of, of sins in your life to bring you down. Uh, you know, there's many examples in Scripture. I was thinking Job is one that uh, he was accused by Satan indirectly to, to God himself. But in Job 1.8 it says, And the Lord said to Satan, By the way, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. He's a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Have you considered him? And then, of course, Satan responds to God and uh, the accuser bringing charges against Job. And it's like he says, wait, wait a minute. Let me tell you why he is a man who is still trusting in you, a man who seems righteous. It's because you have just blessed him over and over and over again. And he's your buddy, and he likes you, and you like him, and his favor, your favor is upon him. And that's why, that's why he trusts you. And that's why he is righteous. And Satan put it this way in verse 9. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of, of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, O God, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. But those are accusations, charges against Job. Hopefully you hear those accusations. He will turn from you in a minute. Let me have him. Just let me get to him, and we'll see how quickly he turns. I'll show you he isn't truly righteous. Let me bring the condemnation. 
You see, charges can be made, but charges can't stick against those who are truly in Christ. There's none that can condemn. And why is that? I mean, if you're a Christian here, why is it that none can condemn you? No one. Well, part of the answer lies in what he says next. Who, who can bring a charge against God's elect? You are God's elect. I mean, that says a lot why charges cannot be made against you. Uh, God has, before the foundation of the world, if you're in Christ, predestined you to what? Be in the image of Christ and to, to be glorified. Now, if that's God's choice, and that's His decision, and His act regarding you, do you think anyone can go against that, against being chosen by God? Uh, those whom He predestined, He conformed to the image of His Son, He will glorify them. That's why, Christians, remember who you are in that day of, 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 of accusation, that day when the enemy brings doubts to your mind. Come back to Him and, and, and just speak into His face and, and point right back to Him this great truth. I am one of God's chosen people. Who do you think you are coming to me, charging me? I've been chosen by God. And this is why the doctrine of election is so practical. I mean, you'll hear people say, well, the doctrine of election is not that big of a deal. I mean, what, so what? You believe it, you don't believe it. There is so much practical application to being God's elect. I mean, besides salvation, you see the, the assurance that comes with that. We have a God who's immutable. He never changes. And so if a God has chosen you, picked you out, holds you in His hand, do you think for one moment He's going to let you go, the immutable God, and say, well, I, I, I was just kidding. You know, I'm, I'm going to let you go. No, you're secure. You know, the, uh, if, you, if you're one of the ones that have strolled into the kingdom of God based on your own free will, there's many who pride themselves in that. Let me tell you this. At any moment, if that's true, you could do an about-face and stroll right out of the kingdom of God and right out of salvation. If you came in with free will, you can leave with free will. But if you were saved by the sovereign grip of God who chose you before the foundation of the world and He's holding you in that grip, He is never, ever, ever going to change and let you go. And no one can, can get Him out of your hand. Are you out of His hand? I mean, I don't know if you think of yourself that way, but I think that's a healthy way to view ourselves as believers. You're God's chosen one. You're the object of His eternal love. Uh, he chose you before the foundation of the world. His, he's an immutable God who doesn't change His mind. And you're secure in the grip of God's sovereign grace. I mean, it's just not here in, in Romans. It's, it's in John. It's in the 10th chapter of John, verse 28, where he says, I give them, Jesus speaks, says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. You're secure in the sovereign grip of God. There's a second reason why that we see here that uh, you will not be condemned, and that is, is because uh, it's God who justifies. That's what he puts at the end. Why? Because it's God who justifies. Now, some commentators that I have in my library believe that there should be a question mark after this. 
I think every Bible that you have here today, because I've looked at every translation this past week, all have periods. It is God who justifies, period. And But there's some really good commentators that also put, this should be considered a question. So I wrestled around with that a little bit this last week. I came to the conclusion, no, I like the period there. And, but it doesn't matter because it really gives you the same meaning either way. Those who would say that it is God who justifies, question mark, are really saying it in a way of ridicule. Isn't it God who justifies? Kind of, you know, reinforcing the same truth. There's no modern translation that puts the question mark there, but I believe it's better to put a period there. I think it's, it's, it, it emphasizes the meaning. Why is it? Why is it that, uh, that we're secure? It's because it's God who justifies. Now, we've seen this before, and Paul's not letting it go. I mean, he's, he's coming back again one more time to remind us about this doctrine of justification by faith. This is important, not only to save you, but this is where your security rests, is in, in the justification, the justifying work of the Heavenly Father. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you remember that day, Christians? Maybe not, but, but you know that you're trusting in Christ today. You were justified at that point in time. Now, if you were been with us, you should know what that means. I mean, the imagery comes of a courtroom and, and, and a gavel in heaven and, and God sitting before and, 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 and really judging those as far as their eternal destiny goes. And And what happens is when you trust in Christ immediately, at that point in time, the gavel went down on your life. And at that moment, God declared you righteous. God declared the righteousness of His Son has now been imputed to you. And your sins have been imputed to Christ. And when Christ died on the cross, He paid for your sins. Therefore, when the gavel goes down, the moment you believed, you were forgiven totally forgiven, past, present, future, and you're standing now in the righteousness of Christ before, before the Heavenly Father. That's justification in a nutshell. And God is the judge of judges. There's no higher courtroom than with God. He is the supreme, supreme, supreme court of heaven. There's no higher chief justice than God Himself. And when that gavel came down and He declared you forgiven past, present, and future, and you're sitting here today in December worshiping you, Him, you are what? You are worshiping Him as forgiven, right? Not guilty, but as forgiven. And you've been, you have all the declared righteousness of Christ imputed to you. You have right, you have access to come before the throne of grace. And so what he's saying here, charges might fly, fingers might be pointed, accusations might be made, but you have been justified once and for all. You might charge yourself and stop doing that. Don't charge yourself. The devil might be charging you. Don't listen to his voice. You know, he might parade in front of you every single sin you've committed. And I'll tell you, we all have committed some pretty ugly sins. In fact, sins we wouldn't necessarily want spread out for the whole congregation to see, right? And it's for, they're forgiven by the blood of Christ. It's God who justifies. 
Satan doesn't justify. You don't justify yourself. God justifies. And by his verdict, sinners now stand righteous. No longer under the condemnation of God, period. It's God who sits on his throne. It is God who is satisfied by the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The highest court of the universe has declared you just. And so let me ask you, do you believe that? I mean, this passage is telling you today, Christian, that you have been forgiven, that the very justice of God has been applied. His son has paid the price. Do you believe that you are forgiven here today and justified once and for all? Who are forgiven once and for all? God's elect. And remember, it's not because of anything you have done. We're going to see that in great detail in just a minute. But it's what Christ has done on your behalf. And so when the accusations fly, when the devil bombards you with fiery darts of doubt, preach to yourself, you've been justified by God. You would say, I place my trust in Christ. It's like he's called me to do, and his work on my behalf is sufficient. My standing is not based on my deeds. My standing is not based on what I did last week or what sin I committed or whoever wants to stir up my yucky past. My, my, my salvation is not based on that. It's based on Christ and Christ alone, his loving work on my behalf. And now it's God, the, the God of gods and the judge of judges who justifies. And by the way, you can rest in that. You can rest in that that. That justification. Now this takes us to the second rhetorical question. And uh, closely connected to the one we just looked at. In fact, it might even be a restatement of it with a little bit different emphasis. We just saw that it's God who justifies. It is God who declares you not guilty. It is God who declares you righteous. How? What basis? How can God make a decision like that about you? Amen. How can God let guilty sinners just off the hook? So Paul re-asks the same question. And the, and the, and the answer in a great more, with a great more detail. The answer has nothing to do with you. The reason why God lets you off the hook has nothing to do with you. It's nothing you've done. Well, I believed in Him. Well, yeah, I know you believed in Him, but on the other hand... Where'd your faith come from? He gave it to you. It's nothing you have done. It's not your behavior. It's not your good conduct. But your justification is not based on what you have done, but based on the merit of what Christ has done on your behalf and your union with Him. That's why we come to the second question, very similar. Who is it that can condemn me? Who is to condemn First he asks, who can make any charges against you? Now he's saying, who can condemn you? Who can bring accusations? This is the same as asking, who will bring a charge against God's elect in verse 33? And it's God who justifies. I know that uh, here he tells us how and on what basis he can justify you. And now we're coming into the grand finale here. This is when, I mean, if you're thinking of, you know, Bombs going off, flashes of light and color in the sky, and things getting more and more intense. We're coming to that. As we look at the Lord's mediatorial work on our behalf, 
You see, it's more than what the Lord has done, but what He's done for you. You can, you can say, well, look at all the things God has done, but do you believe that He's done those for you? For you. No one will bring a charge to stick against you. No one will, will, will condemn you. Why? Because Christ has already been condemned on your behalf. Now think in those terms when you think of your justification. Why? And, and we see a list here of, of what God has done for you. I would encourage you, think about this list as we meditate on the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. As we break the bread and drink the cup, think of each one of these things that Christ has done to bring salvation and justification to your soul and why you have a sense of confidence and security in your heart. First, Christ is the one who died. Think about that. It's Christ that's died. Christ is our substitute. I deserve to die. He died in my stead. There's a substitution that's taken place. He received the condemnation that I deserved. He is holy and, and, and without sin and didn't deserve and would never die because he would never broke the law of God. But on my behalf, he became sin. He took upon himself my guilt. And he bore the wrath of the Father that was poured out on the Son. He died and he took all the punishment that I deserved. He cried from the cross, It is finished. A declaration that I'm no longer condemned. Why? Because Jesus was already punished on my behalf. And by the way, there's no double jeopardy in heaven. Once the crime's been paid for, it's paid for. Someone else can't come along and pay for it again a second time. Christ has paid for it and declared in the courts of heaven. So when the accuser comes to you and he brings doubts, he starts flinging his accusations at you. And, and, and the yuckiness of all your sin and what you've done and how terrible you are and what kind of a Christian do you think you are? Remember this. Christ died for you. He paid the penalty once and for all for you. Your sins, whatever happens in the future, Christian, has been paid for, has been forgiven. He died to save the elect. His death was effectual, and there's no condemnation. There's no guilt anymore. Now, if it stopped there, that'd be great news, but it doesn't stop there. You see, uh, uh, there's more. It's more than Christ is dying for you. He also died. He was condemned, but he was also, secondly, raised for you. There's a resurrection. Having, literally, it's having been risen again. Now, why did he add that? To be justified, you say, okay, I understand. Christ had to die for me, right? I understand that. He paid my penalty. It's paid for once and for all. Why does there need to be a resurrection? Why does there need to be a, a, an Easter? It's a good question. Because what I'm going to share with you is this, is that if Christ did not rise from the dead, even though he died and made the penalty on your behalf, you're still condemned. There must be a resurrection. Uh, how do I know? How do I know that Christ died for me and, and my sins are paid for and, and now forgiven by God? It's because He was raised from the dead. And by the resurrection of the Heavenly Father's declaration, 
He is satisfied. He received his sin offering on our behalf. It's been accepted. And we know we are therefore forgiven. It's really a heavenly validation of the victory of death and sin. And you must have resurrection if you're going to understand the meaning of your, of your sins being forgiven. And Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, where he says, For if Christ is not risen, there's no resurrection, your faith is futile. You are, what? You're still in your sins. Do you see that? There must be a resurrection or there's no forgiveness of sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep and died before us in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. And so if Christ did not rise from the dead, even though he died and paid penalty for sin, if he never was resurrected, we'd be miserable people, guilty and subject to being condemned. Therefore, we're still in our sins, still under condemnation. And you'd be here not having any hope, any security of being truly saved. Why did he do that? Why, why, was he ascend? why did he ascend? Well, Romans 4 says, He was raised because of your justification. You might be justified. And so, enemies we have to fight. We have sin to fight. We have Satan to fight. We, 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 have, uh, we have death to fight. There's hell that, that, that's our enemy. And they were, all, they were all taken care of by Christ in His death, in His, in his resurrection. All were conquered. But there's more than that. <laughs> I mean, if that death, resurrection, I mean, now that's great. But he doesn't stop there. Do you want great security? Realize he also ascended and is at the right hand of God. The ascension is a vital part of your justification. And, and by the way, this is explicit throughout the New Testament. Not only was Christ raised from the dead, he also what? He ascended up in the very right hand of His heavenly Father in heaven. And that's the final completion, by the way, of the atoning work of Christ. Death will have no more sway over you because He's now in a place of honor. He's in a place of power. He's in a place of dominion. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, ruling out over all of creation, all the universe. He's reigning that's why Philippians 2 is such a wonderful passage. In verse 8, he says, And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. But there's more than that. It's he who intercedes, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you see that? So not only did He ascend and is at the right hand of the Father, ruling with great power, authority, and exaltation, here He is interceding for you. Where the S is, you can put your name in there. He's interceding for me. He's coming before the Father and bringing me before the Father that I might be eternally saved based on the work that He's already done on my behalf. If you have a lack of assurance, you have fears of being condemned, not only did Christ die for you, not only did Christ, was He raised from the dead on the third day for you, 
Not only was he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, but right now he is interceding on your behalf before God the Father to secure your soul, to make sure that your soul is safe and secure. When you've got the perfect Son of God asking perfect prayers on your behalf for your salvation, and do you think those prayers are going to be broken or not asked in the right way? You're going to lose that salvation? Absolutely not. So we go to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him with a portion with, great, with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, speaking of Christ, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many, there's the atonement, and made what? Intercession for transgressors. And so God, the, the Father, the Son, is making intercessory prayers to the Father on your behalf. And of course, we see in Hebrews 7.25, therefore, he also is able to save to the uttermost those whom he came Come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so, I don't know how, how he does that. I mean, really, we know he's in heaven. We know he's at the right hand of the Father. We know he's praying for the sheep that he came to save. You know, I was reading Spurgeon last week. He, he, he imagines Christ praying this way. Father... I have suffered in that man's place. Can the infinite justice of God deny that plea? Or by your will, O God, I gave myself a substitute for these, my people. Will you not put away the sin of these for whom I have stood? And so he's pleading and he's he's interceding on our behalf. Let me just sum this up by saying there really is no more secure place that you could be. No more more safer place that your soul could find rest than to know this. Jesus Christ died for you if you're in Christ. Jesus Christ rose for you. He is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, a position of authority and rule and reign over everything. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And He's praying for you. He's praying to the Father that you will remain secure in the sovereign grip of God. So that's why I think not only should we reflect on these truths as we come before the Lord's table this morning, but you should regularly preach these gospel truths to your heart every day, reminding yourself of all that Christ has done when the enemy comes to bring doubts to your mind. Uh, Fire back these truths. Load up your gun with these truths. Take aim with these truths. Pull the trigger right at the face of the enemy with these truths that his fiery darts might be quenched. That that chain that we've seen in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 and following will never break, will never break by any person, or as we're going to see next time, by anything. So that's my prayer for all of us. We might leave here, hopefully, from the Word of God, with a greater hope, a greater assurance, a greater confidence that those who have trusted in Christ alone, you're you're saved. 
Rest in that. Don't let the enemy rob you of that great and wonderful reality. For those of you who are here without Christ, you have yet to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. These promises, these great truths are not yours. They become yours through a union with Christ by trusting in what He's done. And what that means, quite frankly, is this, that you are here today without Christ under condemnation, under guilt. If you're to die in that state, you you die in that state facing the eternal wrath of Almighty God. Why? Because you've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone and all that He's done and repented of your sins as your Savior and Lord. There is coming a, a day of ultimate condemnation You'll be standing there facing just an awesome God, perhaps with fear and trembling in your heart. But until that day, there's there's grace. And there's a call that goes out. And that call goes out to all who are without Christ to simply come. Come to the one who died. Come to the one who, who rose again on the third day. Come to the one who paid the penalty on your behalf. Come to the one who's at the right hand of the Father. Come to the one who is interceding for his people. He alone can give you life. He alone can bring forgiveness. And he alone can bring you eternal joy. Oh, and you can rejoice then with us that God will never condemn you. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. We have the gift, brethren, we have the gift of everlasting life. And so we close, Father, just thanking you for such, such a gift. Lord, it's something we, none of us have deserved. Uh, we weren't looking for you and on a quest for religion or anything like that. But in your sovereign sovereignty, you came to us even before the foundation of the world, before we were born and foreloved us. And then you chose us to be formed in the image of your Son. And then you brought a calling and and a justification that leads to eternal glory. Lord, where where do we stop giving you thanks? Lord, time is not enough to stop. We just have all eternity to worship and praise and adore and thank you for such wonderful gifting. We love you, Father. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. As we come to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, let's stand and sing to Him.